Well, good evening, Summit Church. Great to see all of you here tonight. Uh, Brian, thanks for the introduction. You know, one of the rules of public speaking is that you always make sure you set the next person up for success, and uh, following adorable baby photos is never easy to follow. So hopefully uh, we're able to go well from here, but I might just need to sit down. I feel like that's uh, such good news. Uh, As Brian said, we are in the middle of a teaching series called Meeting Jesus, and uh, six weeks, six stories, six different men and women who have met Jesus in their lives have been forever changed because of it. And the goal for us in this series is to help you come to meet Jesus, learn who he is, understand what he taught, and uh, ultimately follow him. And that's, that's been our goal for the last several weeks, and that will continue to be our goal as we go through this series by showing you what happened to those different men and women as they personally encountered the living Christ. And, um, and this has been a fun series. I feel like we've been learning a lot. And, uh, and tonight, you know, as I kind of think back on the last few weeks and some of the things that we've accomplished, we've looked at a number of different things about what it looks like for us to meet Jesus, some of the things that Jesus has done for us, some of the things that Jesus does in us, the forgiveness that he extends to us, the relationship that he offers to us. Uh, even last week, we looked at some of the things that keep most people away from meeting Jesus. Well, tonight, really what we want to look at is, is, is how, the, really how we receive what Jesus has to offer. If Jesus is eager to extend forgiveness, if Jesus wants to extend a relationship to us, how, in fact, do we receive that? How do we get, in other words, what Jesus is giving? What does the process of that look like? Now, before we answer that question and before we jump into the story, um, I'm kind of taking a change of uh, course here because originally I had this plan to say, I'm going to try to tell you a really compelling story or funny jokes or let's start this off with something really inspiring. But then I realized, I think it was on Friday, I came to the point where I realized, you know what? This story itself in the Bible is so fascinating that I think I'd be doing a disservice to all of us uh, by not spending as much time as possible right here in the text. So tonight, if it's okay with you, instead of uh, a long intro, we just want to jump right into this and get dirty with the text, learn from it, and uh, wrestle with it a little bit. And, uh, and here's what I hope happens. Um, here's what, really, I think this is, I will tell you why I think it's so helpful for us. Because I think um, when I studied this all week, and I really prepared for tonight, here's what I, here's what I realized. Um, I think this story is super relevant and helpful, particularly for two different groups of people. Two different groups of people. First, uh, the first group would be those of you who are uh, new to the Christian faith, or maybe even you're kind of on the outside still or on the edge, you're looking in, maybe you consider yourself kind of skeptical and you have questions and doubts and you're still exploring spirituality. If that's you, if that's kind of where you're at, you're new or you're still on the fence, this story is really good for you because the main character that we're looking at tonight, the man who meets Jesus, he's in the exact same position. He is. He's he's kind of on the outside looking in. He has just a little bit of exposure to Christianity, just enough, though, to put him in a position where he has a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of uncertainties, not perfect faith here. Uh, Really, probably like a lot of you in this room even tonight, I'm not exactly sure what I believe. I'm not exactly sure where, what stance that I would take, but I'm here. And that's kind of where this guy is tonight. Now, that's, the, that's kind of the first group. The second group uh, that I think this is helpful for this evening, for any of you who have ever found yourselves in a really difficult position in life, uh, a really tragic position in life, a really sad 
position on really anything remotely emotional or disturbing or, or, or something that affected you in a really tragic way, which is probably basically all of us here at some point in our lives, this story is also helpful for you. So what I'm trying to say is I think this story is really helpful for all of us tonight, and I think uh, I want to spend as much time as we can in it because it's that good. So again, the question that we're trying to answer this evening is how? How is it that we receive what Jesus has to offer? How is it that we put our faith in God? And what does that even mean? What does that look like? How do we get what Jesus is giving? So uh, tonight we're going to start right there at the beginning of the story, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. If you're taking notes, uh, this first point that we look at is going to be called the timing of our faith. All right? The timing of our faith. We're going to start in verse 1. You can follow along with me as I read. It says, verse 1, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, again, this is Jesus uh, they're talking about, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion, you probably know what a centurion is, right? A centurion is a Roman military officer that has a hundred men assigned to him, okay? Whatever this guy says, a hundred men have to do. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, let's stop right there. A few things happening right now. First of all, uh, we have this Roman official. He's a military officer, and he's got a servant who is sick to the point where he's about to die. Now, some of you have a military background, so you probably understand that this servant is probably less a butler and more like a personal bodyguard, okay? This is a loyal companion, a brother in battle. This is a man who has given his life to serve and protect the life of his commanding officer. And so when this officer, this centurion, recognizes that his dear friend is at the point of death, he is deeply saddened. He is deeply affected by this. So that's the first thing happening here. Secondly, this man is a Roman, all right? This centurion is a Roman. He's not a Christian, He's not a Jew. So for all we know, he probably even worships Zeus until a crisis enters his life, until his life is seriously disrupted. Because at this point, what what happens when, when the centurion realizes that his dear friend is at the point of death? What does he do in the face of impending tragedy? Well, he tends to do what we all tend to do in moments like that. He sends for Jesus. He, be, he beckons God and begins begging for help from God because he realizes that he is in a situation that is way bigger than him, way beyond his power to control, and he needs help. And in fact, that's exactly what we see. This is why we call this the timing of our faith because what happens here is that this man is faced with an uncertain circumstance, a situation in his life where he is in dire need and he needs help, and he does the one thing that we all tend to do in a moment like that. We call out for Jesus. Now, there's a uh, famous book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. Uh, some of you may have read that before. It's actually the very first C.S. Lewis book that I ever read. And um, it's, a, it's a fiction book. It's a collection of fictitious letters written by a senior devil, uh, Uncle Screwtape. He's writing to uh, a junior devil in training, and he's giving him all kinds of advice on how to tempt human beings. And uh, It's a really fantastic book if you've never read it before, but there's this one letter within the Screwtape letters uh, where Uncle Screwtape says, 
If you find yourself with a client, a human being, that you're trying to tempt, and they begin asking themselves those types of questions like, maybe there is a God, maybe Jesus is real, maybe this faith thing is serious and I should really examine it. He says, if if that's the type of client that you have right now, this is the advice that he gives the, the junior devil in training. He said, for goodness sake, don't try to argue with him. Don't try to get his rationale going. Don't try to get him asking the big questions. For goodness sake, get him busy. Get him busy in life. That is the secret to spiritual blandness. So what Lewis is saying, he's saying busyness, that is the secret. That's the secret, secret keeping you from wrestling with the most important questions in life. The questions like, who am I? What's the purpose? What is the meaning? Who is God? Is he real? Busyness is the secret to keeping you away from answering and wrestling with those questions. And I think that's probably true for all of us. Whether we like it or not, whether we've chosen that to be our lives or not, for some reason it it tends to be the case that our lives naturally drift towards complete chaos, right? I mean, without even trying, you know how easy it is for you to fill up your schedules and become completely chaotic. It's crazy. This is even the language we use, right? It's crazy busy right now. It's crazy busy at work. It's crazy busy at home. The kids have so many things going on. I've got so many events on my calendar. We're all crazy busy. And Lewis says that's the very secret to keeping you from wrestling with the most important questions in life. Now, it's coincidentally Mother's Day. And who, probably more than anyone else, knows what it's like to be, to be unbelievably busy and overwhelmingly exhausted? Who? Mothers do, don't they? Mothers know that probably better than anybody else. Uh, anybody else? Because mothers have the, I mean, their job, just, I just saw not recently, uh, or recently it was an article in Forbes magazine about mothers having the most demanding job in our country right now, stay-at-home moms. And I really think that's the case. So here's what I did. I, I want you to imagine for just a second, just imagine, um, what would Uncle Screwtape say to a stay-at-home mom, to a mother? Maybe a working mom even. What, what would Uncle Scrutic say to our mothers today? Um, I made a list. I, I just thought of a few things that he would say to distract mothers, to divert mothers' attention from, uh, from the most important questions that we could ask. Here's my list. Uh, first, keep her busy. Make her in demand from the moment she wakes. In fact, if you want to go above and beyond, uh, make sure the kids wake her up every hour of the night because a tired mom makes for a more emotional mom, and an emotional mom, well, we all kind of know what an emotional mom is like. So uh, let's skip to number two. Two, um, make her feel overworked, underappreciated, and discouraged. Overworked, underappreciated, and discouraged. Uh, Number three, I think this is my favorite one here. Uh, Teach the kids how to start crying spontaneously for absolutely no reason. Or if there's a reason, make sure it's next to impossible to discover what that reason is. Uh, Number four, convince her that it's not really worth it. Convince her that the whining, the dirty diapers, uh, the cell phone that for some reason is now in the toilet, let those all be reminders to her that it's not really worth it. And finally, uh, number five, when she has gone hours, even days, speaking only toddler talk, Uh, without a real adult conversation, remind her of all the better, more important things that she could be doing with her life if only she didn't have kids. You see, what Lewis is saying here is that inevitably, 
all of our lives, whether we're moms or not, whether, you know, every single one of us, we find ourselves putting in positions that our lives become unbelievably busy, unbelievably chaotic. And in those points of our lives, when life is going well, when we have no problems, when we're kind of skating through life at 90 miles per hour, it's nearly impossible for us to have the opportunity to wrestle with the most important questions of our faith, what we believe about God, the meaning of life, any of those things. We find it's way too impossible to, to find the time to be able to do that until a crisis hits, until life stops, until everything comes crashing down. And those then are the moments where we find ourselves put into a position that we have no choice to wrestle with those questions. We have no choice to begin demanding, begging for answers when life comes to a halt. And I think that's particularly helpful for all of us because we probably can all resonate what it's like in those moments when, when life becomes so demanding and crisis hits and maybe, it, I mean, maybe even for some of you here tonight, you kind of feel like, you know, life is just not really going according to plan or life even feels like it's been flipped over completely and I'm just underwater trying to get some breath. I think this is good news for us because what this is telling us is that in these moments, God is saying like there are opportunities that I'm introducing into your life in order to grow your faith. I am introducing different distractions. I'm, I'm, I'm putting certain things in your life, crises, to slow you down, to lift your head, to make you look around and ask the most important questions that you were created to answer. And I think that's really good news for this because I really think that's, I think we really need that. Whether you're, whether you're a brand new Christian, whether you're still on the outside, you're kind of looking in, you're, you're debating whether you want to believe this, or, or really, even if you are a mature Christian who's been following Jesus for decades, we really need opportunities like this to stop, to evaluate our lives, and to ask the most important questions about God. In fact, I believe tragedies like that really can oftentimes be a gift from God because I think those tragedies are opportunities. God, has, God designs these, things, these, these tragedies as opportun- opportunities, pivotal moments in your life for your faith. Whether you're brand new to Christianity, whether you're on the outside, whether you've been following Jesus for years, these opportunities are tragedies, pivotal moments in your life for your faith. And we need this. So that's what when we talk about the timing of our faith. This is usually how all of our faith begins. This is how our faith grows. This is how our faith matures. This is how we even see our faith flourish. It's usually in times of trial. So that's the first point tonight, uh, the timing of our faith. But uh, secondly, we're going to see the object of our faith. So let's continue. Let's get back to the story here. We're going to pick it back up in verse 3, the object of our faith. And um, we've got this, the, the centurion is desperate. The servant is sick. He calls on Jesus. And uh, let's see what happens next, starting in verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. All right, so here's what's happening right now. You've got the elders of the Jewish people going to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, and they're basically going to bat for him. They're saying, listen, Jesus, this guy is worth it. He's a great guy. He's so kind. He's so generous. He's so good. We know he's Roman. We know the kind of things that Romans typically do, but this guy, Jesus, he's not like it, so you should go help him out. Jesus, you know, kind of plays along with this. In verse 6, it says, and Jesus went with them. Now, this is really remarkable. Look at what happens now in verse 6. As Jesus decides, he makes a decision to go heal the servant. Look what happens. Verse 6, Jesus went with them. 
When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So this is a little awkward because Jesus, you know, he agreed to come. He's on his way to go meet the centurion and heal his servant. Then the centurion sends people to stop him. Says, wait a minute. No, Jesus, change the plans. You don't actually have to come. After those elders had already done all the work to convince Jesus, this guy is worth it. You should do it. Suddenly, he's met by these friends that say, don't do it. Don't come, Jesus. We don't actually need you to come. Now, this is, uh, this is actually really fascinating. And what you're about to see is uh, in the following verses that we're going to read, this is kind of like the rationale the, or the reasoning for why, uh, for why the centurion says this, for the, why the centurion says um, you don't need to, to come, Jesus. And let's look at what he says here, because this is, uh, this is so helpful, I think, uh, when, we, when we evaluate this. Verse 7, uh, Jesus went with them. He stopped and said, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Verse 7 says, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. So what he's saying is, Jesus, listen, I've been watching you. All right, I've been watching you, Jesus, and here's the thing. I think you don't actually have to come all the way to my house to heal my servant. I think you can just do your thing, Jesus. You can say the magic word, do it, whatever that you do, and you can heal my servant from right here, eight blocks away. You don't need to come to my house because I've been watching you, and I think that you have the power to heal him right here without taking another single step. Now, what he says after this, uh, let me just make a disclaimer. I think what he said, what the, the, the rationale, the reasoning the centurion has, I think it's really profound. I think it's, a, it's slightly inaccurate, though, okay? It's really, really profound, slightly inaccurate. We're gonna, I'm going to explain why, but just keep that in mind as we uh, continue reading here. Verse 8. Listen to what he says. Here's his, here's his explanation. For I, too, am a man set under authority. Notice he says under authority, not with authority. I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now here's what's really interesting. Uh, He's saying, Jesus, listen, I've been watching you. I've been watching you, and I think we have something in common. I think we have something in common. Here's why I think you don't actually need to come all the way to my house, because we have something in common. And that is, we are both under authority. Now look, Jesus, here's, here's why I, I, I say that. Because I think, when I look at you on the surface, there's really nothing that special about you. I mean, again, this is what I think, kind of going through the, the, the reasoning here. There's really nothing that special about you, Jesus, Jesus, when I look at you. You're a normal Jewish man, two arms, two legs, long hair, sweet beard. And on the surface, there's really nothing that much different about you than any other Jewish man. But... You command illness, and illness obeys you. You command illness, and illness obeys you. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm a Roman centurion. Two arms, two legs, I got my sword, I got my shield. There's really nothing different about me compared to any other Roman soldier, except I've got a hundred men who do whatever I say. A hundred guys who are willing to do whatever I say. I say to some of them, go down the street and guard that building, and they're going to go guard that building. I say to others, go down the street, grab me lunch, and they're going to bring me back snarfs, and we're going to be happy at noon. I tell others, go down the street, you watch that other building, and you guard that, and that's exactly what they do. The only reason that there are 100 men who do exactly what I say is because I represent Rome. 
There's nothing different about me compared to every other guy. I'm not richer, stronger, meaner, smarter than any other of these guys, but I represent Rome. And so what I say, they do. Now, if the only reason they do what I say is because I represent Rome and sickness and death listen to you, you must represent somebody. You see, you get that? You get the, the level of reasoning here? If the only reason these hundred guys do what I say is because I represent Rome and sickness and death rever- listen to you, it's because you must represent somebody more important than you. So I'm saying, I don't think you actually need to come to my house to heal my servant because you're representing somebody. I'm not sure whose authority you're under, but you're under somebody's authority and I think you can heal that servant right now. Now, let me just say, on, on one hand, this is remarkable faith. This is. This is faith. This man has great faith in Jesus. He knows he's not just another teacher. He knows he has the power to heal his servant from long distance. But on the other hand, he tends to, I think when we look at this, he tends to look at Jesus the same way he views himself, right? I mean, he, his kind of reasoning here is, look, there's nothing that's special about me in and of myself. I'm just under the, the authority of Rome. So Jesus, there's nothing that special about you. You just must be under someone's authority. You must just represent somebody, and that's why you have power. Well, that's not exactly correct, is it? I mean, if, if, you know, if you've been with us for the last several weeks and following along, we know that Jesus doesn't just represent God. Jesus isn't just tight with God. We believe Jesus is God in, in himself. Jesus is God. And so his faith here is not completely accurate. All right, we get that? His faith is not completely uh, right on here. But what happens? What happens anyway? I mean, we already know the end of the story, right? Divine power, supernatural healing goes into this Roman man's house anyways. Why? Why is that the case? Why would Jesus heal a servant of a man whose faith is clearly lacking in substance? Well, I think the reason why because ultimately, it's not the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith that really matters. It's not the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith that really matters. Or another way of saying it, I don't think it's necessarily the perfection of our faith, but the direction of our faith. What we're seeing is this man has put his faith in Jesus, someone that can heal his servant. It's not the strength, it's the object of our faith. Now, I think there's an easy way to um, maybe flesh this out, illustrate it. Um, think of, um, just imagine this for a second. Imagine that you decided to go hiking this week, and you're hiking up a 14er. Um, pick any 14er. What's your favorite 14er? Long's Peak? Okay, I heard Long's Peak. All right, Long's Peak. Uh, you're hiking up Long's Peak this week, and uh, you're going out the 14 and you've got your energy bars and hydro packs, and you're almost all the way to the top. You're about to summit the mountain, and uh, just imagine one of those summer storms blows in, and suddenly, out of nowhere, the winds pick up so severely. Just imagine, the winds pick up so severely that you're literally blown off the mountain. Okay, you're blown off the mountain, you're, and you're on, you find yourself then on the side of the mountain, hanging on a rock ledge by your fingertips, okay? I know it's cheesy. Just, just play along, okay? You're hanging there on the side of the mountain. You've got, you're, you're there by your fingertips, and you're hanging on. And then when you look up, you see two different things, okay? You see two different things. On your left, you see this huge log protruding out of the rock, this giant log. I mean, it's stout. It's sturdy. It's coming just a few inches from your face. Plenty of handholds, plenty of ways to grasp it. Big old log, right? Right over there. Then, on your right side, you look out and you just happen to catch out of the corner of your eye. There's also a stick. 
Uh, this is like a little, little bitty stick, okay? little bitty stick coming out of the rock, and it's small, and it's subtle, it's kind of puny, and it's there. You see it. Um, nothing promising about it at all, but you still see it there. Now, what do you do? Which one do you go for? The log, right? Obviously, you're, you're going to go for the log. But what if, just imagine, what if suddenly, as, as you're hanging there on the rock ledge by your fingertips, getting ready to let go of the ledge and grab onto the log, what if all of a sudden you heard a voice from above, someone on top of the mountain screaming down to you, hey, hey, I see you down there. Hey, it's okay. I'm here to help. And then they tell you, hey, whatever you do, don't go for the log. Don't go for the log. It's rotten, and if you grab it, it will break. Grab the stick. Go for the stick. And you're hanging there thinking, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. Are you serious? A stick? It's just a puny little stick. Probably wouldn't even hold a little kid. And he's telling me to go for the stick. Now, in that moment, what do you do? What do you do in that moment when you're, when you're hanging there, full of fear, full of doubt, full of hesitations, plenty of fear racing through your mind about the different scenarios that could play out. You're looking at the log, you look at the stick, but you have just enough faith, just a little bit of faith, just enough faith, alongside a lot of doubt, a lot of questions, a lot of skepticism, just enough faith to let go of that ledge and to reach out for that little tiny stick. And sure enough, just like the man from above said, it was rooted in the mountain. And it was strong enough to hold you and pull yourself up and climb up the mountain. Happy day. Now, here's the point. You could have faith all day long in that log. I mean, you could be fully convinced. You could be absolutely certain. You could be 100% without a doubt certain that this log is sturdy and it's going to hold me and I should grab onto this. But if that log is rotten... Does it make any difference how much faith you have in it? No, of course not. The point is, that stick, although you have fear, and although you have hesitations, and all you have questions, it's ultimately having faith in the right object. It's not the strength of your faith. It's not the perfection of your faith. It's not the degree of your faith. It's not even the amount of faith that you have but it's having faith in the right object. And here's why this is important, because you probably have plenty of people in your life, you've heard this all the time, that will just tell you, you know, all that matters is that you believe, and just believe enough, and just have enough faith, and as long as you believe in something, you'll be fine. And what this story tells us is actually the very opposite. It's saying, no, that's not the case. It doesn't matter if you just believe, it doesn't matter the strength, or the, or the it doesn't matter the perfection, what really matters is that you have faith in the right thing. If you want to be saved, you have to have faith in the right object. I think this is such good news for all of us. I think this is so helpful for every single one of us because, gosh, how freeing is that? How freeing is that when we really think about the way that our faith is placed in Jesus, the way that we receive the forgiveness of Jesus, the way that we start a relationship, the way that we grow in that relationship, the way we mature in that relationship, the way we flourish in our relationship with God is not dependent upon the strength or the perfection or the amount of our faith, but it's placing it in the right object. It's placing it in Jesus. Isn't that great news? That is such great news for us. And I I think what it's really communicating, when you think about this, especially if you think about your own lives, you think about some of the things that you've all gone through, you think about the things that you struggle with, you think about the things that have been done to you, the, the beautiful thing about this story, if it's not the strength, if it's not the perfection of our faith, 
but it's putting our faith in the right thing. I think the way this is so helpful is that it really, I mean, what I, what I feel I take, I take away from this is that a little bit of faith in a great big God goes a really long way. Isn't that amazing? A little bit of faith in a great big God goes a really long way. That should be an encouragement to all of us. It really is. It's really encouraging. A little bit of faith in a great big God goes a really long way. You know what? I've seen this happen so many times in our church. I have. I've seen this happen in many of your lives, even here tonight. Many of you are sitting in here. I've seen you do this with relationships. Some of you, your past, when you think about the way that you viewed relationships before you met Jesus, it was a mess, wasn't it? I mean, like you get all kinds of things that out of order and things you regret and things that are not exactly what Jesus would recommend and tell us to do. And you met Jesus, and then with a little bit of faith, just a little bit of faith and a lot of doubt and questions, you began making decisions. You began taking, listen, this is, this is the entire Christian life, okay? I just want to be clear, this is not just for those of us who are stepping into the Christian faith, but this is the entirety of the Christian life. We are on a quest of continually identifying areas in our hearts that have just a little bit of faith. We are finding areas in our hearts of little faith, and then what, we, what do we do? We turn them over to God. And as we grow and as we trust him and as we continue following Jesus, he takes those areas of little faith and he turns them into areas of great faith. You've done this. A lot of you, like I said, in your relationships, you've made drastic changes. You've made drastic decisions when it comes to the areas of sex, dating, marriage, all of those. Very courageous decisions. Very life-altering decisions. That's so wonderful. We're really, really proud of you, for those of you who have done that. And that's an incredible testimony to the grace of God, when he works in your life in that way, when you take just a little bit of faith, a little bit of faith, in this area of your life where you don't have a lot of faith, but you have a lot of questions, you place that faith in Jesus, a great big God, and he turns it into something really, really remarkable. This is good news, but finally, um, here's the thing. I think having Jesus as the object of our faith is incredibly important, but it doesn't stop there. I don't think that's where it ends for the Christian life. Ultimately, what we need to see is that we don't have just a new object of our faith, but we also have a new foundation for our faith. That's going to be the final point this evening. And um, here's what I want to say. I think um, when we look at this portion, this ending of the story, this is probably the most significant part of the story. Uh, It's also, I think, the most complex. And um, here's what I want to say about it. First, uh, what we're going to see is that there are two different judgments being made about the centurion, okay? Here's what we see. Two different judgments being made about the centurion. And, uh, and to see that, we're going to have to rewind a little bit in the story. So go with me back to verse 4. And uh, here's where we're going to start. It says, uh, and when they came to Jesus, they, these are the elders, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, means he loves the Jewish people. And he is the one who built us our synagogue, which means this guy is loaded and he's also very generous. So here's the, um, here's the perspective of the elders when it comes to the centurion. The elders are telling us, Jesus, this guy is really, really great. I mean, he is really, really incredible. He is good, he is moral, he is generous, he is kind. And if anybody deserves your help, this man deserves it. That's their approach. I mean, this is, this is what they say about the centurion. This man 
deserves it. He is worthy. Now, what's fascinating is if we skip to verse 6, we're going to see what the centurion says about himself. Look what he says in verse 6. And Jesus went with him when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I am not worthy. I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not even worthy to have you in the same room as me, Jesus. No, I am not good. I am not worthy. I don't deserve it. Isn't that remarkable? Two completely different judgments being made about this centurion. You've got the elders who say, look, Jesus, this guy is great. He's worthy. He deserves it. Then you have the centurion himself saying, no, I am not worthy. I don't deserve it. Why does that matter? Why is that so important? Why, Why do we even bring attention to that? I think the reason why that matters so much is because what this is communicating, really more than anything, is that there are two different approaches to receiving the love of God. There there are two different approaches, there are two different paradigms for receiving the love of God. And and what we we see here, uh, first, when it comes to the religious leaders, to be honest, this is the category that almost all of us fall into at some point in our lives or another. Kind of the way that they think, the way that they process this, the way that they assume that their relationship with God is made. Uh, Basically what they're saying is like, listen, the way that we receive God's love is by earning it. If if we obey, if we're a good person, if we're moral, if we're kind, if we do all the things that we're asked to do, then Jesus is going to love us. Then God is going to accept us. We have to earn it. And the more good things that we do, the more God is going to love us. And the less good things we do, the less God is going to love us. And it's almost like, if you can imagine, like, I, for a long time, I'll be honest, I, I really kind of viewed God in this way. It's kind of like the teenage girl with the flower. You know, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, depending on how good I am this day or the next day. So there's times in our lives where we feel like we're doing really well and God loves us. And other times in our lives where, okay, we're not doing so well, God probably doesn't love me as much and I've got to work to make sure I earn that favor. What this story is telling us is that the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, much like us, we feel the need all of our lives to earn, to work for, to be worthy of God's favor. But then we, you know, I'll just say, anytime Jesus meets people like this throughout the scriptures, anytime Jesus really encounters somebody like this, it's almost always the case where Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's not what I'm trying to accomplish here. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the right way. But then we meet the centurion. We meet the centurion, and, and look what happens. The centurion comes to Jesus, and he says, listen, Jesus, you know, you kind of know what's going on. I'm not worthy. No, I'm not worthy. I'm nothing but you are worthy. And Jesus, I'm not good. I know that. I I am not good, but you are good. So I'm asking you, Jesus, not on the basis of my morality, not on the basis of my performance, not on the basis of all the things that I do or don't do, not on the basis of my causes and my resume, but on the basis of something else, something that you represent, Jesus. I'm asking you to come into my life and provide healing. What is Jesus' response? How does Jesus respond to that? Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He was astounded. 
Jesus is astounded. He's completely amazed. That word there in verse 9, marveled, it's actually a Greek word, thumazo. It's the only time this word is ever used in the entire New Testament referring to Jesus being impressed or marveling or being astounded by somebody doing something. This is the only, can you imagine imagine what this would be like if you were the guy, the only person in recorded history that made Jesus go, whoa, did you see that? Whoa, I'm marveling, I'm amazed, I'm astonished at this. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The only time in the entire Bible where Jesus is amazed at someone, and this is, not some, this is not some performance somebody does for Jesus. This is not some moral act. This is not some ethical act. What is it? It is a transfer of faith. It is a transfer of faith. You see, here's the thing. When it comes to saving faith, It's not just believing in Jesus in general. Saving faith doesn't mean just believing in Jesus in general. It means building your very foundation on Jesus himself. Building the foundation of your life on Jesus himself. Everything that you look to for security, for love, for acceptance, for identity, for meaning, it is built on Jesus. And that is what saving faith means. And when Jesus sees that, when Jesus sees this man's faith, he marvels. He's astounded. He's so impressed. He says, look, I have not even seen such great faith in Israel. I think the most beautiful thing about this story is that it gives all of us hope. I think it gives us hope to recognize that our relationship with God, whether we whether we don't even have a relationship with God right now, we're considering a relationship with God, we're, we're in the the middle of a season where we feel like, you know what, my relationship with God is pretty stagnant. We've been following Jesus for years. This story gives us hope because we see a man with less than perfect faith, but has faith in the perfect person, Jesus Christ. And when he puts his faith in Jesus Christ, just a little bit of faith in a great big God, Jesus is able to do remarkable things in his life. And we really believe that's the very case for all of us today. That's the very case for you, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're struggling with something or not, whether you're asking some of those big questions and struggling with some of the answers right now. A little bit of faith and a great big God goes a really long way. And Jesus is very eager. Let me just tell you, Jesus is so eager to take those areas of little faith in your life and to turn them into great big areas of faith. And we love that. We love those stories. We love seeing you make those decisions, radical decisions, decisions that all of you have made in different ways to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, to to follow him more faithfully, to turn those areas over to him and say, you know what, God, you know best for my life and I'm ready to follow you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this night. We're so grateful for how good you are. We're so grateful for how gracious you are. Jesus, we're so grateful for how patient you are. We recognize that coming to faith in you, receiving you in faith, growing our faith, maturing in faith, that is not an easy process. That is not an overnight process. Lord, it's so good to know, though, that you are gracious and patient. Lord, you have all the time, you hold all the time in your hand so that you're able to walk alongside us and accept us, even though we are less than perfect in our faith, God, you are perfect. When we are faithless, you are faithful. When we doubt, you are always certain. 
God, when we're unsure, you are always present and eager to provide wisdom. Lord, we thank you for that. God, we're so, we're so thankful for that. And we pray tonight for those people here in this room that maybe they're on the fringe and they're on the fence and they're kind of thinking, I'm not sure if I really want to follow Jesus and I'm not sure if this is for me. I'm not sure what this is going to entail. Lord, I just pray that you give them the confidence to recognize that a little bit of faith in you goes a really long way. Give them the confidence to follow you. Give them the faith to be able to make some important decisions. And then, Lord, for those of, those of us who've been following you for years, I pray that you continue to give us hope to know that you are eager to change our lives in wonderful ways when we put our faith in you each day. I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.